chapter 3 is where we're at, and it kind of goes along with where we're at this morning in our study through God's Word. My wife and I were talking about this, this next generation and just some of the interaction and contact that we've had with some of the youth through our, our youth ministry there at the Bridge Youth Center, and um, I, was, I, was, I was bringing it into contrast in, in what we're reading here in, in this next section. We're going to be finishing Luke chapter 3 and going into Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil, by Satan. And I, I, I'm reminded of um, what Jesus does here uh, as he interacts with Satan, and also of what King David writes in the Psalms about how he has hidden his word, God's word, in his heart so that he might not sin against God. And, and we see that God's word is a shield for us. It gives us a, a moral compass. It gives us an understanding uh, to prick our conscience as the Holy Spirit comes alongside God's word and leads us into truth. And um, the thing about it is, is without God's word, there's a vacuum. And there's a vacuum for Satan to work. And when we see the youth in our, in our society today that are, are, are really have no understanding of Jesus, God, the Bible, um, church, the, the, they have this empty room where, where nothing's been poured into them because they've been so isolated from, from Jesus, from the gospel message, from God's word. They're not raised in it. They're not, they're not brought up in it. Their understanding is, is, is limited, if anything, at all of these things that are so familiar to us. And, and, and it creates this vacuum and, and that's a good thing in, in the sense that if, if we, the church, are the ones that are, are, are presenting this stuff for them to just suck it in, because they do. They're, they're, all, they're seekers of truth, just like we are. They want to know what the truth is. Unfortunately, the world and the devil, they, they don't stop. And they pour in and they get sucked in and they, 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 they're fed these lies and these deceptions by the world, by the enemy. And, and without God's word, there's no shield, no protection for their hearts, for their minds, for their souls. And so I thank God for what you're doing, Amanda, with, with young lives and building relationships with these teen moms and, and showing them the love, love of God. And we are, we are grateful to be partnering with you and um, grateful for the other ministries that we have here to reach, reach our youth, starting all the way down to our preschool. So praise God for that. Um, this morning as we begin, I want to pray. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 21. I pray for our time together. And I also want to pray for the Bridge to Life Church. Um, uh, Dan, there's a past, new pastor there. His name is Dan Limitoni. Dan's been in our community for a long time. Some of you may know him. Um, he's served in other churches, and he's actually been one of these pastors that after he ste- he's retired, he retired, and then after he stepped down from, from pastoring, he, he made himself available to other churches in the community that when, a, uh, when there was a need for the pulpit to be filled, he would fill just as a, as a, as a, as a gift. Well, um, Larry Kettle, who used to pastor at the Bridge to Life Church, has, has resigned and has moved on, and, and uh, Dan Limitoni uh, answered that call, and he, step, and he's, he stepped up, and he's now pastoring the, the, the Bridge to Life Church. And so we want to pray for, for our brothers and sisters at the Bridge to Life Church. Pray for Pastor Dan and the, the work that he's doing there. And so if you guys will bow your heads with me as we pray for them and for our time together, I appreciate it. Father, we do thank you, God, for this time together to worship you as we study your word and allow for the truth of it and the um, conviction from your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to um, 
do a work in our lives. Lord, we know that even in addition, that not even, but in addition to the, the conviction that needs to come, God, you're here this morning to encourage us, uh, Lord, to, to show us uh, and give us joy, the joy of our salvation, the joy of knowing that you're our Father in heaven who loves us, the joy that we receive from knowing that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us, and that he came as the, the infant child, Lord, so that he may identify with us in all ways. That he, has, that he can sympathize, you sympathize, God, with us so that we may come to you with full confidence. And Lord, we want to come to you this morning with full confidence. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's struggling with that, with their relationship with you, and, and, and um, under the, they're, they're, they're living under the condemnation of their own heart and the condemnation of, of the enemy, Lord, I pray that you would, you, would, you would speak to their heart and remind them, God, that your mercies are new every morning. Father, that... Um, uh, there's no condemnation for those of us who are, who are in Christ Jesus and, um, and that you love us and you desire to, for us to be walking with you hand in hand. And, and Lord, I pray that would be, be spoken to, to our hearts this morning. We also lift up our brother, Pastor Dan Lamatoni, and the call and the work that he has there at the Bridge to Life Church here in our town. We pray for our brothers and sisters there. We ask God that you would protect them, that you would bless them, that this time of year their hearts would also be filled with joy and encouragement. God, that they would know you and know your love and that they would take that through Dan's leadership as he shepherds that church as your faithful under-shepherd. And Lord, that they would spread that good news, that light to the rest of the world. Lord, we love you and we love them. So we ask you to bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, let's read, let's see. No, yeah, okay, well, let's just do a quick recap. In, verse, in the first verse, just real quick, in the first 20 verses of this chapter, we're going to pick back in chapter 21, what we've been reading about, we've been reading about John the Baptist, and um, we know that he'd been sent by God to prepare the way uh, for and to point people to the Messiah. And uh, Luke told us that this all took place as Luke continues to give us this orderly account. He sets forth the timeline for us, and he says that it happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And in that time, in that year, that the word of God uh, came to, to John the Baptist. And John responded in preparing the way for the Messiah after receiving the word of God by going to the to the region around the Jordan River and the Jordan area. And he, in doing so, he was calling the Hebrew people. He was calling them to confess their sins, several things here he was doing, but to confess that they were sinners who were in need of the Savior, not to, to rely upon the fact that they were children of Abraham, um, that they weren't relying on their heritage, but they were, they were understanding that was God was calling them individually and, 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 and personally into this this relationship with them, and then it came through this Savior that, that God was sending. In addition to, to acknowledge that they were sinners, then to repent of their sins, and lastly, to bear fruits that were worthy of repentance. Those things is what, what John was calling people to as he was preparing the way for the Messiah. And in light of this, if you remember, we talked about what it means to bear fruits worthy of of repentance and how true repentance is evident by a change in the way that we treat those around us and in the way that we live our lives. And we talked about how these changes are ultimately that, that direct result of our relationship um, with God. 
that comes to our faith in Jesus. It's not that God, God, God saves us and then expects us to, to change ourselves. That, that salvation that God gives to us through faith in his son Jesus is also that we become new creations, that his nature then is inside of us through the whole indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and, and God refines us, he, he sanctifies us, he purifies us, he, he makes us more like him in, in this process that we're all in. God, God does this awesome work and and as we talked about that, um, uh, we see now in the remaining verses of this chapter, as, as uh, Luke continues the, the account for us, that, that Jesus comes back into the scene. He comes back into the picture. And as we're told that he, which seems odd, but that he, Jesus, was also baptized, came to John to be baptized. So in verse 21 of chapter uh, three, if you'll look there with me, you're going to read uh, verses 21 and 22. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Father, um, as I hear those words that you spoke over your son, Jesus, there, as he rose up out of the water, I'm reminded that you call us your sons and your daughters. I'm reminded, God, that you're well pleased with us. And truthfully, Father, sometimes we don't always feel that way. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us the faith this morning to receive the truth of what you've spoken about us, that you're pleased with us. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to the work that you desire to do here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, on a day when the John the Baptist, and it was obvious from the context of the scripture that this is something that was a regular thing for John, and on a day that, that, that when John was baptizing the people as really kind of was now the ministry that he had entered into, after all of those had come to be baptized on that day, however many had lined up for it, it says that Jesus presented himself to John for baptism. And I love the, the, the account in, in Matthew's uh, gospel because I think John's response would, was right and, and, and it might even been our response if we were in, in John's shoes and John's sandals and knew what was going on because in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, it, it tells us that when, when Jesus presented himself to John in this way, that John first refused to baptize Jesus because he knew that he was the perfect son of God. And he had, as a result of this, that he, being the perfect son of God, had no need to repent of sin. He was he's sinless. So we might ask ourselves, why? And why would John submit to that? And why would Jesus submit himself to it? Nevertheless, John ultimately relented, as Luke accounts for us, to Jesus' request. <coughs> and Matthew explains why when he says that Jesus answered John saying this, quote unquote, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That was the reason. That's the explanation. It is fitting for us to fulfill all 
righteousness. In other words, the baptism that Jesus submitted himself to, it had a purpose. It was to accomplish certain things. And to begin with, by his baptism, Jesus identified with us. From the very beginning, we've been talking about this. Why would God send his son Jesus into the world as an infant child? I see I see in my own understanding of things the way that Christ will return, and according to the account given to us in a revelation, in the book of Revelation, as a more fitting um, um, entering into creation by the God, the Almighty, right? We've talked about that. But we see that Christ sought to identify with us as he came as a human infant child. And here again, we see as he is submitting himself to the baptism of John that he is identifying with us the very sinners whom he came to save. Furthermore, Jesus' baptism, as we see here with the, with the words that God spoke when, when this was taking place about his son, is this really the official start of his ministry And Luke clarifies this in verse 23, which I did not yet read, where it said, Now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And so Luke in this verse clarifies as he goes on to write and and say that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age, that the baptism of Jesus and the proclamation of God the Father was was really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But more important by these words that, 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 um, that, that God spoke, or that Jesus spoke, excuse me, uh, about fitting for, for him to fulfill all righteousness, we see that his baptism for us is a picture of the redemptive work that he would do to fulfill all righteousness, right? Because we know even today that baptism is a picture. It's a picture that reveals and points us to certain things. In that baptism, through the immersion process with Christ and with us is a picture of death, of burial, and of resurrection. And Jesus' baptism pointed, pointed forward to the literal death and burial and resurrection that he would suffer in order to fulfill all righteousness, a redemptive work. And who Jesus is, and the reason for why he came to do, or for what he came to do, was, was confirmed when he rose up out of the water, and, and God the Father spoke from heaven, and then identified to the world his son, his beloved son. And furthermore, that was confirmed as the Holy Spirit then visibly came down, we're told, upon Jesus in the form of the dove. Likewise, when Jesus rose up from the grave, as we see the baptism pointing forward, when Jesus rose up from the grave and showed himself to be alive, it once again affirmed who Jesus is and, and, and confirmed the redemptive work that he came to do. It was the proof. Now, further evidence of Jesus being God's son who came to save us by fulfilling all righteousness is established in the remaining verses of this chapter in the genealogical record given by Luke. I'm not going to read all these names. They're real hard to pronounce. Someone else can try if you want. Um, but, But really, at the end of this genealogical record is what's important anyway as we see this affirmation, this confirmation that Luke is, is bringing forth for us by, 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 by accounting this record. And um, what we see going on here is, is um, 
is, is part of the orderliness of what Luke is doing. And this, 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 this work that, that Jesus came to do is, is, an, is, is, is again, this, this identification. And the genealogical record we read here, which, by the way, is through Mary's family, which is not customary that it would come through the, the, the mother's side in this, but it's this family line all the way back to Adam reminds us that Jesus, who is the Son of God, right, is also the son of man. And you can read the last verses of this record, which, which, which Luke points out. He's the son of God and the son of man, as it's traced all the way back to Adam. And he was born into this world so that he might identify with the needs and with the problems of those who came, whom he came to save. Who here has needs? Who here has problems? It should be a comfort. It should be an encouragement to us this morning as we read these things and see repeatedly the stuff that Christ submitted himself to as, as, a, as, a, as a means or as a way to, to go, I know what you're going through. And those are comforting words when you go to a friend or, 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 or someone who loves you and, and you speak your, your difficulty, your trial, and they go, you know, I know what you're going through. That happened, something like that happened to me too. And this is what I did. And God has done that for us through his son, Jesus. Now, this divine proclamation of the Father about Jesus, about God the Father, about Jesus being his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, I picture it as like the, the starter's gun at the beginning of a race that's being fired off. That sounds out the beginning. For with this proclamation, we see that God was sending his son to begin his work of setting us free. Setting us free from Satan's grip. Saving us from our sin, from our death. And for John the Baptist, who was is, who is standing, I believe, in this scene next to Jesus, and that's how I picture it in my mind, in the water, and for those whom, whom, whom John had baptized and those whom he had been preparing the way for for the coming of the Messiah, this proclamation that was heard audibly had to have been a very, very sweet sound to their ears. This is him. This is the Messiah. This is the one that I've told you about. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now as we prepare to read on, because we're going to just jump into chapter 4. As we read on into chapter 4, I want to point out um, that we're being told by Luke about Jesus' work here on earth, the beginning of it. We're, 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 being, we're, be, it's, 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 we're being told about how Jesus' work here on earth began and about the events that took place at the start of his ministry. And in light of this, I find it interesting that we're first told about some adversity for several reasons. I'm going to go into them, but from, from, for, for one reason alone is that whenever there's great opportunity in regards to spiritual things, there's going to be adversity. And God makes this proclamation, and Jesus is sent forth to, 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 to now engage the world in the way that he had been sent for, and there's Satan. There's the, there's the adversary who's bringing in adversity. And a lot of this, I find it interesting that we're first told about the adversity Jesus faced in regards to his encounter with the devil because obviously he did not consider God's proclamation about Jesus to be a sweet sound. 
He saw it as a threat. And one of the things that we need to understand about the devil is, is he, first of all, is not all-knowing like God is. Lots of people will kind of put Satan on the same plane as God. He's not. He's a created being. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He can't be all places at all times. However, he is smart. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's wise. He's, he's, he can be, he's a very fool for the decisions that he's made, but he's smart. And, and he was able to figure out what it meant for him if God had, in fact, sent his son to save the world. The Bible tells us that the world has been given over to the devil. He's the ruler of this age for a time. And that's because of, of when sin entered in, the very thing that had been given to God's created man, to us, it was, it was, it was turned over. Satan stole it from us. And so Satan, who is the adversary of God, seeing that the Savior had been sent into the world or hearing about it, decided to look further into the matter for himself. And in doing so, he made his first attacks against Jesus in an attempt to continue to sabotage God's plan, God's plan of redemption. And Luke, who continues to give us an orderly account of these events that, that took place, he recalls for us this encounter by the devil, between the devil and Jesus. And he wrote here in chapter 4 and said, in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, and this first part is key, so if you want to underline that or highlight that, you can in your Bible. It's going to be important to what we're talking about this morning. But it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, and will, if you worship before me, all will be yours. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. Then he, Satan, the devil, brought him to Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, in my, in my Bible, that last phrase there in verse 13 is, is highlighted and underlined. It's important that, that, that we see that he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, it appears that the Holy Spirit, that appears that the Holy Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. This was a work of God. 
God knew about this. He knew it would happen. God wasn't like, oh no, the devil's there in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led him there, and he did so because it was also necessary for him to identify with us in regards to temptation, right? In every way, he, he can identify with us. And, and it says that, that Jesus was, was, was tempted there in the wilderness. And, 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 and there's a passage of, uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews that kind of affirms this to us and that Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are as by the means of identification. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it reminds us that we have this high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, for he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he did not sin. And in these verses, we see that even though there are, there are three specific temptations that are mentioned, which apparently took place after Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days, it's important to notice that according to verse 2, if you look there, that... that um, Jesus had been tempted by Satan during the entire 40 days that he was in the wilderness. And according to verse 13, there were other, here's the, here's the phrase, there were other opportune times after this that Satan would come throughout his ministry to, to, to continue to tempt Jesus. It wasn't a three and done kind of a thing. And I, and I point this out because in light of this, we need to realize that the devil who is also our adversary and in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told that he walks about like a, a roaring lion seeking to them, seeking whom he may devour, that, that he too is coming to us in the same way that he came to our Savior Jesus. That he comes to us in opportune times. And even though the devil is casting temptations our way, he's always looking for those opportune times to come against us in order that he might devour us, destroy us, deceive us. And by what we read in these first 13 verses, and we should expect that the devil who is shrewd and crafty, that he'll come against us when we're vulnerable, when we're weak. Those are the opportune times. No one picks a fight against somebody when they're all healthy and, and strong and, 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 and prepared for it, Right? The best is to catch someone off guard, and the devil's good at that. And the fact that Jesus was tempted the whole time he was in the wilderness illustrates, illustrates for us, first of all, what a place of vulnerability can look like. If you remember, I pointed out last week that the Greek word that's used for wilderness is the word eriemos, and it's used to describe a desolate place, a lonely place. And the point is, Satan saw that Jesus was alone, so he thought. He saw that he was alone, that he was in a desolate place, and he perceived that he would be vulnerable in this place and thought it was an opportune time to attack Jesus and to tempt him. And for those of us who are Christians, we know, you should know, probably from experience, that the quickest way to enter into a spiritual wilderness, to a desolate or to a lonely place, is when we, first of all, don't spend regular time with God. If you're not seeking fellowship with God on a regular base, you're going in a regular basis, you're going to be weak, you're going to be vulnerable, but also it, 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 it comes, these, these places of, of, of vulnerability come when we're not with God's people either, when we're alone. 
When we're separated from God and from God's people, we're vulnerable to the devil's attacks, and we should expect that that will be an opportune time for the, for the enemy to tempt us, to tempt us into sin. And this is why there's so many instructions and warnings in the Bibles that teach us to not separate from one another from the body of Christ, to not forsake the gathering together of ourselves. And you see, God has given us to each other, and that old adage that there is safety in numbers holds true in regards to our spiritual well-being, to our spiritual safety. So we're less vulnerable to Satan's attacks, guys, when we're in regular fellowship with God and with other believers, through prayer, through worship, through the reading of the word, through the fellowshipping together with the saints. And that can be on a Sunday morning, but if that's all that there is, that's still a place of vulnerability. It's in men's studies, women's studies. It's in serving together in the community and the other things that God has made available to us. It's, in, it's in as simple as is asking someone to go to lunch with you who's another Christian, someone to go have coffee with you, to share your life, to open it up. That's a strengthening that, that protects us from the attacks of the enemy in those times. But just like Satan had attacked Jesus when he thought he was vulnerable, he also attacked when he thought that Jesus, um, when he thought that Jesus was weak. So there's vulnerability and there's weakness, and the two are connected, but, but Satan was seen both in this situation. And specifically, we see according to the first temptation, he did so when he saw that Jesus was hungry. We're told after 40 days of not eating, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, he was hungry from not eating anything. And the point is the devil saw that Jesus' body, that his flesh was weak, and that he attempted to capitalize on this. Now, as you know, probably, if not, you should be aware of this, that our flesh is weak in regards to the spiritual things that God calls us to, to the temptations of the enemy. Our flesh is weak since it naturally, the Bible teaches us, that our flesh naturally lusts after many things. And in light of this, we can expect that the devil will try to tempt us in our weaknesses so that we might give way to the lusts of our flesh and enter into sin. But just like fellowship is a way to stay spiritually strong so that we're not tempted into sin, there is a way to resist temptation even though our flesh is weak. And this is illustrated by the fact that in verse 1, if you look, we're told here that Jesus was led by the Spirit when he was in the wilderness. In other words, knowing that our flesh is weak, knowing that there's vulnerabilities there inside of us, that we must seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. Knowing that there's weaknesses that we have, we must seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. Literally, as the Bible teaches us, to walk in the Spirit so that we do not give way to the lusts of our flesh when the devil comes and tempts us. If I'm walking in the flesh, I'm gonna live according to the flesh. That's what Paul writes. And when Satan comes and tempts me, it's just something that my natural man goes, yes, I want that, give me more. But when I'm walking in the Spirit and living according to the Spirit, then those temptations will be, be um, fought by the Spirit of God that lives inside of me. In Galatians chapter 5, verses six through se- or 16 through 17, we're told this. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. 
And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you, that you wish. And, 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 and guys, I, I want to point out that this walking in the spirit thing that we talk about often so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh so that we're, we can stand against the, the temptations of the, of the devil that, that wants us to, enter, to give way to the, to the things that our flesh desires, the, the, the spiritual weaknesses that are there as a result of our, our flesh. It, it, it's one thing to say, yes, we need to walk in the spirit, but what does that mean? What does that mean? And I'm here to tell you this morning that for all practical purposes, listen, for all practical purposes, walking in the Spirit simply means to be obedient to the Spirit. I've had conversations with a lot of people because this is something that I experienced myself when early in my, my walk with the Lord, I was very angry. I was, that's the, I, I was just an angry person coming out of the world and being saved. And that, that, that giving way to the anger was something that I struggled with early on in my Christian walk. And I, I remember one incident, I don't need to go into it and tell you all the details, but I remember one incident where I just had this outburst of wrath over something stupid. And, and, and Praying there afterwards as I had hurt people around me by the words that I spoke and the actions that I, that I had and, and throwing this, this, this outburst of wrath temper tantrum, praying to God going, I want to be different. I don't want to be like this. God, why am I like this? I've, been, I've given my life to you. I continue to do this. But it was a weakness that I had and I kept giving way to it. And what God convicted me of in that moment is that, that in walking in the Spirit, it wasn't being obedient to Spirit because in that moment, even if it was for a, a fleeting blink of an eye second, there was a moment I, I faced in every situation that I'm tempted to sin according to my flesh where I have this, this moment to choose to do the right thing or to choose not to do the right thing. It was no longer, longer an issue of not knowing. It was an issue of, of knowing but still giving way to the feelings and the emotions or the less of the desires that I had. And that still holds true today when I do that. It's, 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 but, but now it's not so just a, a split of a second fleeting apparent moment before I'm overcome by my flesh. It's, it's more of this contemplating upon it and whether I'm going to obey God or not. And I thank God that there's this bigger space to, to live within so that I can make that choice because I have more control of it because of the Spirit of God who lives in me has changed me. But, but it, it simply put, walking in the Spirit means being obedient to the Spirit, to the laws and to the commands of God, which the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance when the temptation comes. So for me, when this temptation came, when I felt these feelings of anger in that moment, and the Holy Spirit would go, okay, you shouldn't do this, you should do this. Then I had in that moment the decision to make, a choice to make. In light of this, it needs to be pointed out that being tempted is not the same as sinning, but in a temptation, we all come to a point of decision. We all do. We all come to a point of decision on whether or not we will choose to do the right thing. For example, when someone says something spiteful or rude to us, there's a temptation to retaliate, right? Or to get even in one way or another. But if we, if we do that, then we break God's commandments, right? But if we listen to the Holy Spirit who reminds us of, of something like perhaps Romans chapter 12, verse 21, which says, do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good, and then do this command, which is found in the Word of God, rather than retaliate, rather than, than and looking to get even, you know what we're doing in that moment? We've made a decision to walk in the Spirit in obedience to what God has made known to us. And we've overcome the temptation. See, now the first of these three temptations, which is recorded for us in verse 3, we see that the devil was attempting to get Jesus to use his divine powers to meet his needs outside of the will of God. Let me repeat that. We see in this first temptation that Satan, the devil, was attempting to get Jesus to use his divine powers to meet his own needs outside of the will of God. It was a question of Jesus putting his immediate needs ahead of God's eternal purposes. That can apply to us, can it not? Putting our own perceived needs ahead of God's eternal purposes, the things that he's called us to. And in reality, the devil was actually taunting Jesus and he was saying, if you're the son of God and you have this desire of your flesh, then use your power to take care of yourself. Simply put, the devil was tempting Jesus to give in to the desires of his flesh, which after 40 days of not eating had to have been screaming out his flesh, saying something like, feed me, I'm dying. But what we know is that Jesus was not moved by the desires of his flesh. Jesus was not moved by the lusts or the desires of his flesh. He was moved only by the word of God And he always did the will of God. Tempted in every way, but yet without sin. You see, the thing about the lusts or the desires of our flesh is that our flesh wants us to believe that if we don't give in to the the things that we're we're desiring, that that if we don't give in, (laughs) then we're going to suffer. If we don't give in to the desire, we're going to suffer. We're not going to be we're not we're going to miss out on something good or or we're even going to die. If I don't get that, if I don't have that, I need it now. But the truth is that the very thing that our flesh wants us to believe is going to satisfy us, the very thing that our flesh wants us to believe that is going to give us life, which is outside of the will of God that our flesh is designed is the very thing that brings forth death. And knowing this, Jesus said, and knowing this, Jesus said, it is written What did he turn to? God's word. Holy Spirit leading him and reminding him and saying, hey. And he opened and he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but out of by every word of God. In other words, guys, when we deny our flesh and its lust and submit ourselves in obedience to the word and to the will of God, then we will live. Then we will have life. Simply put, when we, like Jesus, put the eternal purposes of God above ourselves, when we put the eternal purposes of God above ourselves, above our needs, above our wants, God will provide for us in such a way that will always give us life and life more abundantly. In light of this understanding, I believe the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, take on a new or deeper understanding for us. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grasses of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, while the devil may have been, I think, a little subtle in his first attempt to try to, try to, to, in his first try to, to, to tempt Jesus into sin, this was not the case. Subtlety was not the case in regards to the second temptation, which is mentioned here in verses 5 through 7, where the devil said, Then taking him up on a high mountain, he showed him, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. And this time, Satan blatantly, I think, and even, even boldly presented what was evil. He boldly presented the evil thing by asking for the worship that belongs only to God in exchange for all the world's kingdoms given to Jesus. It appears that the devil was bolder with the second temptation because giving into this evil was in exchange for something that was good, right? You do this and you'll get that. How can that be wrong? In fact, this, 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 this deal that Satan was making was actually an opportunity for Jesus to escape the cross, right? On the surface, that's what it appeared like. It was, it was an opportunity, apparently, for Jesus to escape the cross. But what Jesus said, he said no. And if guys, if Jesus had accepted the devil's deal, our salvation would have been impossible. You know, he may have gained some sort of authority to rule in this situation, delegated from Satan, but he would have never been able to redeem the individual sinner through his sacrifice. And in light of this, we should realize that one of the devil's temptations, one of the, 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 the devil's tactics in regards to tempting us is to deceive us. You guys know, you know he's a deceiver, Right? But we see, we see one of the ways in which he'll try to deceive us in that, that um, he wants us to believe that doing something that is wrong can be okay if the end brings forth something that is good. That's what's going on here at the base level. Doing something wrong as long as the end brings forth something good. Simply put, the devil wants us to justify our sin. Ever justified a sin? Yep. Me too. <laughs> he wants us to justify our sin in an attempt to get us to do something that is against the word and against the will of God. But sin is not something that is ever justifiable. And, and, and because of this, there's never a good reason to disobey any of God's commands. 
which is life to us. So when we justify our sin and say it is for the sake of good, then we're only being wise, as the Bible says. You're only being wise in our, in our own eyes. When we, when we justify our sin in our mind and go, if we do this because it's, gonna ultimately, it's ultimately a good thing, we become wise in our own eyes. And God, he extends a word of warning to us more, this morning to, to, the, to when we do this. And he says in Isaiah 5, verses 20 through 21, he says, Woe to all those who call evil good and good evil. That's really what's going on when we justify our sin. Call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, imprudent in their own sight, saying, and this, this is me going on, but saying, God, I know better than you. You say this is wrong, but it's gonna work out. It's gonna bring something good. And that's what the Satan was saying to Jesus. Go ahead and do this, and it's, it's what you come for anyway. Do this, this, this bad thing, worship me, and you'll get something good. It's gonna be okay. In light of this, I want to point out that, that um, um, Jesus' response to this temptation that the devil laid before him, that Jesus first told the devil, uh, I love this, he told the devil where to go. <laughs> you can tell the devil where to go. <laughs> Get behind me. And, and he spoke what had been written in the book of, of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and only and only." In him only you shall serve. And by quoting this verse, Jesus, what he did is he decisively affirmed what was true, the truth. He decisively affirmed what was good. And in doing so, he slammed the door on the temptation that was set before him. And then those times when we're faced <coughs> with the temptation to justify our own sin, we got to turn to what is true. Turn to what is good. In light of this, I want to point out that Luke in chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, he records a time when, when Jesus was teaching the people, as, as Jesus would do throughout his ministry. He was teaching in this time specifically about what it meant to be a faithful servant of God. And the Pharisees, who were not faithful servants of God, were in the crowd, and, and they were listening, and they were convicted by Jesus' words, and they spoke out being convicted, and they openly ridiculed Jesus for what he was saying. Yet Jesus pointed out that they were only justifying their sinful behaviors of not being a safe, faithful servant, and he called them out on this by saying that it did not matter what they said in their attempts to justify themselves. Because it's impossible for God's word to fail or to be untrue. In other words, the truth will always be the truth. Amen? The truth will always be the truth, so there's no real way to justify what God's word declares to be wrong since it's the truth. And what must we do when we're in those situations where we're justifying or being tempted to justify our sin, looking to like, well, this is going to be a good end. We need to rest in the truth. Now, as we kind of wrap it up this morning, the last temptation recorded for us in these first 13 verses is, is um, well, in it we see the devil who, who is shrewd. Um, he took note of the fact that Jesus had been combating or battling his temptations by repeatedly quoting God's word. Okay, he was shutting him down, he was putting him in his place, right? Telling him where to go and by, by using God's word as his weapon. So what does Satan do in this last temptation? He quoted a part of God's word. Does not God's word say? 
And he, he tried that, by the way, with, with Eve back in the Garden of Eden. And, he, and he'll try to do the same thing to us as well. But he quoted specifically from Psalm 91 in order to convince Jesus to do the devil's will, to do his will, and to prove himself to be the Son of God. Yet by doing this, Satan was challenging Jesus to put God in his word to the test, specifically by jumping off of the temple and seeing if God would protect him. And this temptation by the devil, I think, was the original triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you, jump off and see if God will save you. Maybe it was like, I dare you, Jesus all know. And they all, I triple dog dare you. It was as if Satan was saying to Jesus, if what you're saying is true, then prove it. I dare you. But Jesus had nothing to prove. Nothing to prove to Satan. Because he's confident because he was confident that God his Father was with him. Furthermore, to give the devil the attention, guys, here's what it really boils down to. To give the devil the attention and the satisfaction that he was looking for would be a form of exaltation. He would be exalting Satan to a position he's not worthy or deserving of. A place that God alone is worthy and deserving of. So in verse 12, Jesus again quoted another truth from the word of God. And this time he said in De- from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and he said, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now the thing to point out is that through all these temptations, Jesus did not use any of his divine powers to overcome the devil. I can think of a lot of things that being all-powerful that Jesus could do, right? I mean, the very first miracle he's going to do is he's going to change water into wine. Jesus raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He did some pretty awesome things while he was here on this earth, demonstrating his power over creation. He was more, he's more powerful than the devil, okay? As a matter of fact, I wish Jesus would have used some of his divine powers and, and, and we were down here, you know, um, But he didn't. He didn't use any of his divine powers to overcome the devil. And and, and the reason why, I think, is, is, is for us, because he used the same spiritual weapons that any of us can use. He's an example for us. He used the same spiritual weapons that any one of us can use when we're being tempted to resist and to overcome if we will yield to him. The worship team wants to come up. I want to end with this. Listen, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. Speaking of God, who came in the flesh. He said, God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. Why? Because God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted upon your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There will always be the time, God, when, guys, when the Holy Spirit will come in and speak conviction. He'll speak truth. And we'll have that moment to react, to respond, to choose what we're going to do. To either walk according to the flesh, give way to the temptations, or to walk according to the Spirit and have life. In closing, I want to point out that the Bible teaches us again that Jesus was tempted so that he could personally experience what we're going through and be prepared to assist us and show us how we can overcome the evil one by the means of the Spirit of God and by the means of the Word of God. 
Hebrews chapter 2, another passage that affirms this in verses 16 through 18 says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps. That blows my mind because I think about angels and I read about them in Scripture and I go, they're pretty impressive beings, right? And, 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 and on a scale of like who you might help, I think God, well, yeah, God will help the angels, but me, who am I? And, and, and lots of times we feel this way about God, that God will come to the aid of those in need, but he won't come to my need. We, 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 we somehow exclude ourselves that God will do that for you, but I don't think he'd do that for me. And that's not true. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offsprings of Abraham, us. We've been grafted in through our faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, Scripture says. He, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And in Hebrews chapter 4, I read one verse from this chapter earlier. In verses 14 through 16, it says, then, guys, we'll end with this. Since then we have a great high priest. We do. And since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to our faith. Let us hold fast to our hope. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I would encourage you this morning, if you are in this spot where you need to come before the throne of grace. She would do this so this morning with the, the, the men and women who will be up front here praying and, and making themselves available to pray with you. Don't leave this morning without having that grace encounter with God that he's calling you to. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you, God, that you put your Holy Spirit in us to not only sanctify us, but to lead us into the place of truth. Lord, that we may <coughs> have life and live, to have abundant life, Lord, where we're not, we're not um, led around by the temptations of our flesh and the, the pride of life and the lust of our eyes, God, where we're just like a, an animal off doing what we don't want to even do. God, but that you put your spirit inside of us and you've shown us a better way. And God, that you made the way for us to, to turn away from those things. So Lord, as your spirit is in us, Lord, and we cry out to you this morning. Father, we trust that you'll do this work in us. And Lord, with the Christmas season upon us and the remembrance of the great gift of your son, and the salvation and redemption that we've received. Father, may it be that heart of gratitude, that heart of love that draws us to you again today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.